Hello and welcome to the Modern Poetry Podcast. Today I am joined by my friend Caitlin Pertry. We will be talking about another, a second Wallace Stevens poem. Today we're talking about his poetic teaching as puzzled in 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. Hello, Caitlin. How are you? Hello, I am well this afternoon. Excited to discuss 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. Yes, this sometimes it just reads like a series of puzzles, but in our discussions about this poem and our ruminations and our poetic detective work, we figured out all sorts of things about how these are human experiences that reveal something to you about the character of intellect, how we think, how we look at the world, and why we need some kind of poetry to do it. Talking this over with you, Caitlin, I remembered another Stevens poem called Man Carrying Thing, which starts with a beautiful illustration of his art of poetry. He says, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. You've got to have a puzzle there. You've got to show people that there's some perplexity. There are obstacles to understanding because otherwise you just take the world for granted. Great. I will start off with the first stanza. Among 20 snowy mountains... The only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. So this starts somber and ends comical. It starts off very, such a grand cinematic look. And then it zooms in in the space of just three lines, very, very specifically onto not just the blackbird, but the eye of the blackbird. From largest to smallest things like that. Yeah. And Wallace Stevens is not a poet of snowy mountains. He is a poet of blackbirds, however. That's more the scale where he's comfortable operating. There's a rhythm to among 20 snowy mountains, and then it's all broken up. The only moving thing is the eye of the blackbird. There's a blackbird there. And this maybe says something about what's interesting. He draws your attention to what your own eye would be drawn naturally. Something moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what eyes are for, to distinguish moving things specifically. And he seems to suggest that 20 snowy mountains may seem beautiful. They're grand, impressive, but they're just the background. Mm-hmm. That's not the important thing. We'll be looking at small, not particularly poetic blackbirds. Percy Shelley never wrote an ode to one, neither did John <laughs> Keats. No. <laughs> but here's Wallace Stevens. And so this is what we start with, this comic inversion or comic preference for the small over the great, for the everyday over the majestic and unusual. Uh, it seems this is where we naturally live. This is our experience. We look at things that move. They attract our attention. Yes, and we are also not equipped, I don't think, unless we are giving it a bird's eye view to, please excuse the pun, but (laughs) for our scope of vision, we are not equipped to take in the 20 snowy mountains all at once. We do live, as you were saying, and observe and experience at the level of the individual blackbird. Yeah, I think you're on to something important here. One reason we're attracted to grand things is that they're beyond our scope. 20 snowy mountains is this enormous vista seen from far, far away. You're not seeing anything there because your intellect is geared to tell things apart, to discern this thing from that, Mm -hmm. to analyze, to pull things apart. And you need to see detail. This is just the juxtaposition of two grasps. One of them is the panorama, the bird's eye view, as you put it. The other one is the actual bird's eye view, which is just details. And the literal bird's eye view is better than the metaphorical one because at least you know what you're looking at. You can't tell anything at that distance at 20 snowy mountains. That's too far. People are drawn to it. They're tempted by it. It's attractive. It's imposing. But it's not for human beings. 
So this seems to be why we start here. And we've introduced our blackbird, and now we'll introduce our poet. Yes, second stanza. I was of three minds, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. So this is the first person address, and it also has this comical puzzle character. Mm-hmm. Yes. You often hear the phrase, I was of two minds. You have not yet come to a decision. You're presented with two options between which you have not yet decided. But here we have a playful, I think, take on that. I was of three minds. You're right. Why do we say I'm of two minds? It's because I can't make up my mind. And why can't I make up my mind? Because I have options. It is the riches of the world, you could say, the wealth of being that suspends us in perplexity. If you have options, which way do you go? play upon an expression brings out the moral implication of that expression. To be of two minds in a certain sense is to be paralyzed, perplexed, you can't act because you haven't made up your mind. But that also means that you're free, that you're not driven by necessity. Mm-hmm. Necessity hasn't made up your mind for you. Yeah, nor have you committed to anything yet. So you could sit around and look at things. In fact, you have to. That's how you make up mm-hmm. your mind. But here he says, maybe it's more than what you think. Should you say no or should you say yes? What are your alternatives that make you of two minds? Maybe you could be of three minds. Maybe if you start paying attention, you notice all sorts of things. And the fracturing of your minds shows you the world doesn't add up. That's why we can be of two minds. The world doesn't add up. But if you sense that, that sometimes you're perplexed, you can begin to know more about that perplexity. You could be of three minds. Then he adds this poetic image I was of three minds like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. Sure, each of the blackbirds has its own mind, but they're all the same. Mm -hmm. There's both sameness and difference. Your many yous, you could be this you or that you or that you. If you do make up your mind, you will have made up one of those minds, and then you can't be the others. Mm, I like that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. Once you've chosen one course of action, yeah, you've chosen one of the blackbirds. But there is an alternative. You know, there's a Shakespearean sonnet where the tree is an image of wisdom. And of course, the tree of knowledge is, say, a Norse mythology image. The tree is the house of plurality. And that's a justification of poetry. While you're perplexed, for example, the way poems perplex you, you could weigh your options. You can only live one life, but you could consider many more possibilities when you're just thinking through poems. Yeah, I like that. There's a unity there. He says, I was of three minds, like a tree. The unity being in the one tree, but there is the possibility within that to entertain different possibilities, to explore different possibilities. So at first, it looked like we had a choice to make, and the choice was made for us. It's not going to be 20 snowy mountains. You're not getting the grandeur here, the sublime immensity of nature. You're going to be focusing on little things. But when once that choice is made for you, it turns out that it opens all sorts of choices. And so we go on to this further exploration of the character of our thinking. The third stanza. The blackbird world in the autumn winds. It was a small part of the pantomime. Again, there's a comic turn to this. And of Mm. course, the word pantomime is itself comical. Now we have two sentences and we have to see what relationship there is between them. The first one describes for you a scene. You see a bird in the sky. Then there's an inference made from that. He shows you this is what thinking is. You notice something, and once you have noticed it, you notice something else. You infer, you reason beyond your eyes. And so what you see turns out just to be a small part of something else. There again we have the relationship of the small and the great, as we have had it before, of the part and the whole. And this will happen, of course, again and again. 
here he invites you to think about the invisible. You can see a blackbird in the sky, but you can't see the winds. You can only see clouds moving. You can see leaves in the trees moving. That's how you see the winds. You infer from the visible to the invisible. That is the way of thinking. That's part of what makes us human. And that also requires inferring from part to whole. You see the motion of a bird and you infer something much bigger from that. The effect on the bird is just part of the wind, but you infer the wholeness of the wind, this phenomenon, from that small thing. The blackbird is a sign for something else that is not a blackbird, but affects it. The blackbird isn't free like we are. The blackbird whirled in the winds. The blackbird needs the winds to move, and it is not in control of the winds. It can only negotiate air currents as they come. That shows you that there is something real there that affects it. It is not made up. But at the same time, he calls it a pantomime. He's not talking to you about the necessity of motions of currents of air, because this is not a physics class. But he also points out something else that you won't be aware of in physics class. There's something comical to the character of reasoning. At some level, it's just a pantomime. You think it's necessity, but you're just guessing at it. You infer from a small part to a great whole of which you don't have experience. There's way more poetry than you're willing to admit. Just state the facts, ma'am, like he does here, and all of a sudden your imagination runs away with you and sees invisible things. And you call that necessity and reasoning. Sometimes you get it right, but sometimes you don't, and you always, because of the intellect you have, do it in the same way, inferring the invisible from the visible and the whole from the part. So here we get the first example of a thought that you, the audience, have to think after he, the poet, thinks. We're all caught up imitating him here, and he has us imitating something that we would be doing anyway in another situation, just to draw attention to how we think, what is the character of human intellect, and how it's tied up with certain imaginations, and a certain power in the mind to add invisible things to the visible, or to make the invisible visible as a cause in its effects. And so this is the first time he gives you this treatment of how you infer from part to whole. Of course, the next poem is going to be about how problematic wholeness is. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a blackbird are one. So goes the fourth stanza. Again, it sounds jokey. You have two sentences and they're even funnier on paper because there's the are one. That's just a line by itself. What way are they one? I think throughout these first four stanzas, we've started off with a first sentence or a first line that sounds a little bit more grand. Among 20 stowy mountains, the blackbird world in the autumn winds. I think you could even say the same thing for I was of three minds, although that perhaps starts off a little bit more jokey, for lack of a better term, than, than the other two. But then you move into this lighter tone. And I think that's also what happens here. So a man and a woman are one. That's something that we can all grasp that. Yeah, he just seems to be saying, this is your nature, man and woman go together. And so one way it's about love, and that's part of nature. But in another sense, it's this other aspect of what we mean about human nature. You can talk about man or mankind or humankind or humanity in the abstract, and then you would be putting together implicitly man and woman. Yes. In reality, everybody is a man or a woman, but in speech you have a spurious wholeness. Yeah, part of the whole, which is humanity. The same idea that we were talking about before of parts and holes. And so he moves from that, man and woman, putting two together. That's how the species survives. But then, man and woman and blackbird also are one. 
Mm-hmm. There's no difference. The whole is as spurious in this picture as in the other picture. And that brings up a certain question of nature about man and woman. By nature, human beings are sexual, and that means that there are females and males, and they have to reproduce. And that forms a certain oneness, a togetherness, a wholeness. That's nature. But isn't nature something to do with our individuality? Is it the case that I, a man, and you, a woman, think of ourselves as not one? A man is a one, a woman is a one, man and woman are also one. By adding the blackbird to show that our natural sexual multiplicity and togetherness are more problematic than we think, brings up this question of individuality. Yeah, there's two different ways that you could be thinking about the word one. One in the sense of an individual being, or one in the sense of this unity of being, which sounds really like a grander way to put something that really isn't maybe quite so pretentious. Yes. So every being has to have some kind of wholeness. And this is a question in the Phaedo of Plato. As Socrates is there about to take poison, the city of Athens has convicted him to death. They're going to execute him any moment now. He talks about how he became Socrates. And he says he used to study science. He was a mathematician, physicist. And then one day he stumbled over this basic question of arithmetics, of putting two together. How does one and one make two? And this is something that nobody after the age of seven or eight worries about, except, (laughs) of course, some theoreticians of mathematics who are trying to come up with a theory that grounds arithmetics logically. It turns out that it's way harder than it seems, by the way. But we don't usually bother with this. Who worries about how one and one equals two? That's part of what seems to be in play here. As you put it, one has actually two very different meanings. One could be a simple whole or a complex whole made of parts. If you're riding a horse or driving a car, in some sense, you could say you're at one. Mm -hmm. You could say that the car is an extension of your will. It has to go where you want. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, car and man are different. And in the case of man and woman, the problem is that each of us knows it takes two to reproduce the species. That's oneness by nature. But still, we all insist on our individuality, oneness each of us alone. That's the contrast that he brings out. Where do you think nature is? Do you think nature is in the couple, in reproduction, or do you think nature is in the individual? And he seems to lean towards the latter. That's why the second sentence introduces a blackbird that screws up the natural reproduction picture. Maybe we're in a hurry with figuring out necessity and nature. We make mental pictures where such and such goes together. But if you introduce another element, all of a sudden it looks weird. Uh, We're maybe being presumptuous. It's not that simple. The question of individuality is brought into it. Which I wonder if maybe would take us then to an idea of one, as I put it before, a unity of all beings. So this oneness that is all-encompassing, it's a complex whole, as you put it before. Yeah, it's a whole made of parts that don't necessarily go together or whose togetherness is at any rate unreliable. Well, I suppose if you truly maintain your individuality within this greater whole, perhaps that puts the integrity of the whole into question. I'm not sure. Yes, certainly. You could say that the human species will survive, but that doesn't seem to reassure any of us who are mortal nevertheless. Yes. Nobody faces to danger saying, well, the species will go on. Well, I'm not worried about the species. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about somebody who's hurt here as an individual. Holes are more complicated than we'd like to admit. And it again reveals something about the character of intellect as such. One mode of intellect would seem to be putting two together or making holes. Say you see a shadow or a cloud and you imagine it looks like something. You have to have in your mind that power of recognizing images and fashioning them in your mind. The other power of intellect is analysis, breaking holes into parts. Mm-hmm. This seems to be what he's pointing towards here. Holes are more complex than you think, and you have to try to figure out the parts that make them to come together. 
How are a man and a woman a one? Well, they're different parts that come together because of love. But then you ask yourself, a man and a woman and blackbird are one. What caused oneness there? Mm-hmm. It's your intellect that forces holes, and maybe they don't add up, actually. Hmm. And the wholeness is as arbitrary, but as real as a picture. You can see a man and a woman and a blackbird. It might just be spurious or accidental. Mm-hmm. So he's full of puzzles. That's who Wallace yes. Stevens is. <laughs> yes. So do you think then that the point of this stanza is to, as we've been speaking about, we're thinking about how we think about things. It's asking us to question and reevaluate how we put these holes together, how we perform this synthesis and how we arrive at these larger holes. Yeah, he's trying to lay bare certain human powers of intellect to show you this is what it looks like inside of us. This is what's happening. I love this way of looking at the poem through the lens of parts and holes, because I think that's especially what this particular poem is. It's 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. So it's one poem, but it's really 13 mini poems. And I guess part of what we're doing is seeing what connects them, what makes them a whole beyond falling under the same heading on the page and beyond all 13 of them being about blackbirds. Yes, there are certain lines running through certain themes and problems that are developed. There's a reason to read poets. Here's somebody who has thought through how human beings imagine, think, speak, and what it says about us. And now the poet is willing to introduce himself in his own individuality. And like in poem two, he said, I was of three minds. Now he gives us a poem about being of two minds. Yes. The fifth stanza, he writes, I do not know which to prefer, the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos the blackbird whistling, or just after. So yes, here in binary, it's one or the other. He wants you to consider how these things fit this or that experience. He introduces himself in his individuality, and it's a suspended individuality. You don't know him by his actions. You have to get to know him by his thoughts, doubts. You could start from a basic experience. You can hear a blackbird whistling, and then it's not whistling anymore. There's the blackbird whistling, or just after. There's a poetic mm-hmm. touch there. It's just after. He's asking mm-hmm. you, what do you feel like when the song stops? But it's not as simple as singing or not singing. It's singing and then singing stopping. That's yeah. a specific way of not singing. And now you have to pay attention to that because he says, look at how this affects me. There's a beauty of inflection in the song, how the sound modulates. You wonder, where is it going? It's changing. Mm-hmm. And then it stops. And he says that is an innuendo. It is a suggestion of something. Inflection and innuendo. These are both already very sophisticated, abstract concepts. Inflecting is inflecting something. In the case of the bird, the sound. In the case of the poet, it's not just sounds he's inflecting. And innuendo doesn't even have anything to do with sound. It has to do with the message the sound transmits. An innuendo is a suggestion. It is not a logical implication that you have to infer and that works by necessity. It's just a suggestion you have to have a feel for, you have to pay attention to. The thought has to be in your head. If somebody tells you something outright, you don't have to do much thinking. If somebody implies something, you have to do some logical work to infer, but you don't have to imagine it. Whereas in the case of innuendo, there is a suggestion. And of course, innuendo carries the suggestion of the unsayable. An innuendo is not just a suggestion of a logical proposition. It's also a transmission of a mood that's supposed to connect you to the mood you're in when the bird stops singing. As the bird inflects sounds, like it or not, you're somehow imagining when poets write songs about bird song. 
Is it a plaintive cry like the nightingale in John Keats's ode mm. that's tied up with death? Or is it like the skylark in Percy Shelley's poem? That is joyous. Mm-hmm. Out. Oh dear, I shouldn't have brought this up because now I don't remember, but it, it, it's a similar idea. He writes about... The- I know what you mean. There's a bird poem, but I forget yes. what bird it is about. We'll have to look it up. We'll add it in the show notes. Yes. Bird song is written about by poets, but nobody really believes that's what the bird intends. The inflected sound, the quality of the sound and its changes affects you in some way. And when it stops, then you learn something about yourself. What were you expecting? Where did you think it would go? What does it bring out of you? That's a matter of expectation and attitude and mood. You can't quite grasp it. It has to come out of you. Then you can wonder, what mood did it put you in? What did it evoke in you? That's the difference between inflection and innuendo. And these are two kinds of beauty. Now, of course, the tenor of the poem suggests he prefers the latter, full of suggestions you have to catch and try to think through. Almost nothing is said clearly. Yes, it's something that's, I should say rather, just outside of your grasp. The bird has just stopped singing, so I'm thinking of it right now in terms of presence and absence. So either the bird is singing, the song is present, you can hear it, or absence song is no longer there except for perhaps in your memory it's just left out but it's not just your memory it's also what else lingers your mood the mood yes you're right that it is about presence and absence and if you think about that more philosophically it turns into actuality and potentiality that's what aristotle Mm -hmm. would say yeah this is a difference between ancient and modern poetry ancient poetry was about actuality told you what achilles did Now, the interior life of Achilles was not up for grabs. Modern poetry, you're reading Jane Austen or Emily Dickinson or Hemingway, they'll tell you about the thoughts of such and such endlessly. There's a lot of interior monologuing happening there on the page. You start wondering about things, what could be, not just Mm -hmm. what is, but what could be. Mm -hmm. And that's how you slip from presence to absence. And the absence of things happens in certain specific ways. It's not just the absence of birdsong, it's the end of birdsong. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the absence could make you feel happy if you're getting rid of somebody that annoys you or of a problem. Absence Mm -hmm. could make you feel sad if you lose somebody. What is the Mm -hmm. human meaning of absences in question here? In what way are things absent for you? And what possibilities of being who you are does that reveal? And this seems to be what he's suggesting here. There's a reason to prefer the innuendo to the inflection. It'll make you think about something about yourself. Say you listen to a song you really love, and when it's over, if you attend to that mood, you discover something about yourself. And so we're moving on from the sound of the bird transmitted in a distance to the look of a bird transmitted in a distance, which also has this strange relationship to mood and the theory of causation. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow of the blackbird crossed it to and fro. The mood traced in the shadow an indecipherable cause. And there we have that mood again that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. He prepares these things and then he says them. He gives you here this image of two kinds of glass. One of them is a window. The other one is icicles. What's the difference between human making and natural making? Ice is barbaric glass. That's such a great suggestion. This is the world we live in. It's an artificial world. And we tend to think of nature as barbaric. Say, if you listen to a soprano, exquisite training and talent, then you listen to birds, the birds can't hit notes right. 
if you listen to Mozart and then to Birdsong, birds aren't getting anywhere. Do not birds know anything about melody and development and variation? You're literally looking through glass. And then the question is, how does that change your view? We think of glass as invisible. Glass you just let you see through, as though it's not even there. We're not aware of how our artificial world changes our perspective. But with icicles, you notice, they don't let light through as perfectly as does our glass. No. And no. that makes it obvious that there is a medium through which light passes. There is a separation between you and whatever is beyond the glass, because you can't see things perfectly. And so that's supposed to remind you of you. And again, he shows you how the actual and potential differ. When you don't see things right, that reminds you of potentiality. You'd want to be looking at things, but you can't because the glass is imperfect. As the Apostle tells us, we see in this life is through a glass darkly. Yes. Now, of course, modern science has solved that problem, but let's just imagine it hasn't. You see things unclearly because of how you see them. You don't have direct access to beings. That access is always mediated through something, and it might be something natural like the icicles or something artificial like glass, but it's always going to be there even if you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. It's very Kant. I think he's moving in the direction of Plato, but yes, he does point out that potential as opposed to actuality reminds you of how intensely subjective we are. We right. see things in the way we see them at the time we see them. Mm -hmm. And now he's moving into something that looks like Plato's cave, Book 7 mm -hmm. of the Republic. The shadow of the blackbird yeah. crossed it to and fro. You don't see the blackbird any more than you see real things in the cave. You just see shadows of things. You're sitting at the window, then you're looking out, and the window is not clear, and then you see a shadow which is not a thing. There are removes between you and being itself. Mm -hmm. You start out as a human being, not as a disembodied knowledge and perception of the world. The mood traced in the shadow an indecipherable cause. You're a human being. You're moody. What did you see in that shadow? What did it make you think of? That's your mood talking to you. There's an indecipherable cause there. The shadow, the motion, the dark playing on the glass brings something out of you. That's because of your mood. The scene he's painting here, let's think about it dramatically. Why are you sitting at the window staring outside? You gotta be in some kind of mood to be doing that. Mm -hmm. If you were active, you'd be doing that. It's, again, potentiality or mm -hmm. wondering about what might be. Mm -hmm. Being pensive. Now, pensive mm -hmm. just comes from the French for thinking. But when yes. you say somebody's pensive, we say he's moody. It's somewhat brooding. It's thoughtful, but it's not happy. Turn to that idea of being suspended that we were talking about in Another earlier way of being, stanzas. This has to do with how your mind works again, that. The things you perceive, like shadows on imperfect glass, they form in some way. You can trace an outline, a being, a something comes out of it. You don't have direct access to the being, the blackbird. You don't have direct access to yourself either. There is a shadowy realm of imperfect transparencies. That's what is poetry. The images in poetry are not real things, and the poetic transmission is not clear glass either. Poetry stands between us and the world, but you have to be in a certain mood to get it. Mm -hmm. And then you start working out without quite realizing causation. You start thinking about motion, like the motion of the bird, from the shadow of the bird that you see moving on the glass. That is where thinking causation starts, and you would think it starts in the worst place possible. An unclear medium with unclear evidences and an untrustworthy witness. He's moody. That's being human. 
he gives you here a description of the human condition as poetry and making images and trying to think about what their meaning is, what they say about us and the world. And now we move to the center where we have a direct confrontation between two types of poets. O thin men of Haddam, why do you imagine golden birds? Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the women in front of you? So here, for once, he's talking about other people. Of course, we have no idea who these people are, because that's what you do when you take the name of a place or the name of a person. The rest of us have no idea who these people are or where they're from. Mm -hmm. I had to look this up. Wallace Stevens lived in Hartford, Connecticut, and Haddam is apparently a city oh, nearby. Me, I have no idea what it's pronounced like. I've never oh. been there. <laughs> I mean, the people who live there know. These are not brawny farmers, they're not workers, they're thin men because they're like him, intellectuals, writers. And the thin men have one imagination or idol, and that's golden birds. And Wallace Stevens says, that's not right, you should be looking at the blackbird. He has a different image, he has a different idol. Then there's a confrontation of two forms of poetry here. Now, what does golden birds put you in mind of? Do you mean specific types of birds, or...? I don't know, he doesn't say. I'm not quite sure where he where he wants us to go with that. What could golden birds mean? We know these people are some kind of thin men. Presumably they're on the brainy, not on the brawny side. And they seem to be poetic. They seem to be some kind of poets because they imagine golden birds. You know, think about one possibility. The goose lies the golden egg. In that case, I guess they would just be financiers looking out for money. They're always imagining a golden bird. Mm -hmm. So that's one human type that you could easily understand. Then we're thinking about the advantageous. It turns out that this has to be on your mind, not in a calculating way merely, in an imaginative way. You have to fantasize. But of course, you could think about the golden birds not in relation to the advantageous when you want to decipher the image. You could think about it in relation to the beautiful. Poets in that case, not clerks in an office, workers in a financial institution. Somebody was thinking about golden birds because they're beautiful. The phoenix is a golden bird. In that case, the suggestion is different. It's about flight and some promise of immortality. Rebirth and from the flames. It's far more exalted, far less practical. So you have two possibilities here. These are more thoughtful than imagination might seem, because one is about the beautiful, the other about the advantageous. Mm. What are your intuitions about the good seems to be the implicit question. And then he says, that's all wrong. He implies it. He doesn't say it. Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the women about you? They should be looking down. They shouldn't be looking off in the distance or in the sky or wherever you would see golden birds. Mm -hmm. There's an inversion of perspective here, or certainly of interest. What are you looking at? And so he says they should be looking at the feet of the women. Why? I'll say two things. There's one thing that I want to remember to come back to the image of, or rather the imperative to, you should be looking down at the blackbirds that are at the feet of the women who are around you rather than presumably looking up and imagining the golden birds. It reminds me a lot of the first stanza, where rather than taking in the vista of the snowy mountain, we're instructed rather to focus on the one moving thing rather than trying to take in a large panoramic view. We're supposed to focus on something that's more immediate, and that's what I'm getting from this image. You look and you see what's around you. Yeah, you're perfectly right. We're going from the grand golden to the mundane. Yes, yes. The image of the golden bird also comes up in another Stevens poem called Of Mere Being. I haven't read the poem in a little bit, so I'm not really prepared to analyze the different ways in which it's used, but... That's interesting. Perhaps. Maybe we'll look that up. That yeah. would be interesting to talk about, too. Give the listeners a little other nugget to explore. 
Yeah, exactly. You're right that he's been preparing us for this confrontation between two kinds of imagination, two kinds of birds that interest you, and what they reveal about you and the world. From the beginning, he's been leading us to this confrontation here. The poem has the character of an ascent to this question. Why are you looking off in the distance or lost in your imagination when you should be looking down? Of course, one re obvious reason is that there are women there and the women have legs. People stare at women's legs because they're attractive. It's eroticism. Apparently, these are men who ignore women. Maybe if you're off imagining things, you're not aware of the things that should really be driving your imagination. And again, he suggests attend to an everyday experience seems to echo what we were also discussing with the first stanza. You don't have to have a large panoramic vista view of 20 snowy mountains in order to think of things in a poetic mindset. You can look at very specific details. You don't have to imagine the transcendent golden birds. You can look right in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is a juxtaposition typical of ancient and modern poetry. You ask Homer, he'll tell you about the greatest war ever, this massive vista of war sieges, destroying towns, invading fleets. That's epic, is what we call her, right? But not Wallace Stevens. He'll tell you about women's feet and blackbirds. <laughs> Considerable distinction of perspectives and objects of interest. And so he's moving on from this direct confrontation to another expression of it in poetry. He has some justifications for why his sort of poetry is better. Eighth stanza, he writes, I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know too that the blackbird is involved in what I know. Noble accents, lucid, inescapable rhythms. So that would be typical of Homer, or maybe say Tennyson, there's beautiful language. He just gives you some evidence that he can do it too. <laughs> what is beautiful poetry? Is it there are beautiful images in it or that it sounds beautiful? If it makes any sense to talk about sound is beautiful. At any rate, it sounds pleasing. Mm -hmm. and there's you something can harmonious to it. Mm -hmm. And so that's that seems to be the problem with poetry, that it's all said, but it is a strange combination of images and rhythms, sounds. And here he suggests, maybe I just know more than these other people. They're seduced by things that sound good, noble accents, lucid, inescapable rhythms. Now, of course, for a rhythm to be lucid is a contradiction in terms. A rhythm is about movement or hearing, and lucid means light that you can see clearly. There's strangeness there, just like nobility would never be attached to an accent or a sound. But people hear poetry that reads in a certain way, and all of a sudden they puff up. There's nobility. The rhythm and the accents of Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. And then the first part, I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms. That sounds good. The other part is common. But I know, too, that the blackbird is involved in what I know. But he says, there's some reason to prefer this. It's knowing, too. It's knowing more than the people who are seduced by beautiful sounds and the sorts of things that make you think, wow, this is real poetry. Wow. Which might just be clever speeches. And he's not involved in that because of this other thing that he knows. It's not that he doesn't have the human attraction for clever speeches, for beautiful sounds and all that. It's that there's this blackbird on his mind. Again, you see self-knowledge. He knows something about his own knowledge. 
He knows something about himself, about how he has acquired knowledge, how his mind works, and what experience he starts from. So he seems to suggest, don't worry about things sounding good, don't be so easily seduced by that. Think about these other things that don't sound good, but they're on the other hand puzzling about human experience and the character of knowledge. Mm -hmm. There you will find yourself. And of course the suggestion in the adversative character of the little poem, but is that maybe we like noble sounding poetry because when we read it, especially if you recite it, you're caught up in those passions. Talk about work and you're not actually fighting the war, but you can get as excited as the guy fighting the war. Mm -hmm. Because you reproduce these passions, you think that you're reproducing the thing. You're deluding yourself, you're living out a fantasy, and it's because that fantasy is better than life. Why do people go see action movies? None of us are volunteering to go die in a war somewhere, but it's great when it happens on screen. We do that all the time. We delude ourselves with these fantasies. And he suggests that maybe we're trying to escape reality because we don't know ourselves. It's banal things like blackbirds that have led him to self-knowledge and it's preferable than deluding yourself. And so he moves from here to delineate more things that have to do with self-knowledge and poetry. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. So this is one of the poems in this little series that had me stumped. Mm -hmm. Last time we talked about it, you just looked at it and figured it out like that. Yeah, so I thought of this in terms of the image that it produces. So the very end of the stanza talks about circles, one of many circles. So a circle is a point that moves continuously along the radius or an equal distance from the center of the circle. Not taking geometry in a little bit, so excuse my, my secondhand knowledge. But the point is that you are at the center of the circle and the outer edge of that circle delineates the edge of your experience, your horizon. And when this bird crosses that line, when the bird crosses that point, you can no longer see it. And that is the edge of your perspective. And as you move, the center of your circle shifts and your horizons shift. And so that's how I was thinking of that when we last spoke. Yeah, and I think this is always the thing to do, but it didn't work for me. It worked for you, and you're completely right about this. He's trying to say, you always work within horizons. You're never going to escape your perspective. You could think about it and maybe knowing that leads you to something better, but that is where you start. And he says, just think about how sudden and perplexing in a way this experience is that you trace a movement and then it disappears. There's the bird and then it flies out of sight. All of the stuff that's implied in movement, an intention to get from here to there somewhere for some purpose, this somehow attracts your attention. But then when the bird flies out of sight, you realize of a sudden that's your perspective and those are your horizons because of that. You have to live somehow within your limits with awareness of them. We all think we're in the center of the world and everything is moving on orbits in circles around us. And to the extent that we have to pay attention to things, that's exactly true. You're always looking at things where they are in relation to you and their movements around the center of gravity of your attention, so to speak. Our perceptions are tied up with the way we organize the world around ourselves. And whenever that presence turns into an absence, like you said before, all of a sudden you become aware of that fact. You're trying to order up the world and the bird just didn't want to cooperate. It has its own circle to attend to. Yes, exactly. 
being able to see, recognize, perceive, describe, does it mean you're in control of things? You're also not in control of these other kinds of experiences, not the actuality of the bird's motion, but the potentiality of the bird's motion when once it disappears. You can trace out in your imagination all sorts of things, but if you don't do that, you could attend to this perplexity that your experience was already organizing an order that was baffled by this event. I'm thinking uh, now back to the third stanza where we have the blackbird whirling in the autumn winds and you were speaking about how you can see the blackbird whirling and then perhaps we work backward from that and we think, oh, it must be because of the winds, but we don't necessarily see the winds to know that that's happening. Now that we've passed the halfway point of this poem, we see the bird flying and we see the bird flying out of sight, but the poem itself doesn't posit a reason for the bird flying out of sight. You're right. Poems within the poem make you think that other image there and how they compare. And you're right that here, you're no longer caught up in that spontaneous imagination that characterizes our intellect. You always pause it through a motive, a reason. Whereas here, things have changed. You're supposed to have learned certain things about the character of your experience. And now it insists more on the limits. You have to somehow deal with our natural tendency to make metaphors out of things to insole the entire world when it comes into our attention. Now we're, you could say, at the higher level of that power of soul. We're geometrizing. We're not doing theater like a pantomime in stanza three. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. We're being more circumspect. I would say, and a little bit more measured. We're not making perhaps those leaps about causes and reasons for things the way that we perhaps were in the beginning of the poem. At the sight of blackbirds flying in a green light, even the bods of euphony would cry out sharply. Again, we see this confrontation of people who talk about images and people who talk about sounds. Euphony. The opposition is between the blackbirds flying green light. These are all motions and colors and sight. In the other case, it's bods of euphony that cry out sharply. Those are just sounds. Some men are described by sight, some men by hearing. He seems to be going back to the kind of poetry that sounds really good. Even those people, if they were to see this, blackbirds flying in a green light, they would cry out sharply. But the cacophony is spontaneous. It's mm -hmm. a witness. We're not naturally all that musical or not all the time. By their own rules, the masters of sound would concede defeat. Poets should be focusing more on this. So when you respond spontaneously to something, maybe it's something beautiful, the sight of blackbirds flying against the green light, but your response isn't to just spout out a fully formed poem in perfect cadence and perfect meter. As we've been discussing before, that's something that's more, there's more artifice in that. There's more intentionality, I suppose, in that. Whereas the spontaneous reaction is, as you were saying, you gasp, you applaud. It's not nearly as poetic. Yes, you're perfectly right. We shouldn't try to be that artificial. Making poems may be harder than cleverness of speech. Right. It's, right. You're right that trying to make up this experience, to reproduce it in language in a way that it would affect people by imagery and words and sounds and juxtapositions, all of this construction, it takes art, a rare art. You had better start not from things that sound good, but from arresting images, things that suggest something to you. You don't know what, you just confess their power by crying out sharply give them only an image of experience that nevertheless has to enclose a real experience that's of interest to human beings. 
this tenth poem ends with crying, and the next one is about fear, another seizing experience is mentioned there. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. Once a fear pierced him in that he mistook the shadow of his equipage for blackbirds. This recalls Plato's Phaedrus and the image of flying horses leading a chariot with driver into the skies. That's mm-hmm. an image of the soul. And it, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, it's intended to get the soul closer to truth. You're supposed to get beyond appearances and beyond the universe to whatever is beyond the sky, the beings themselves. Right. Stevens points out that might be really scary, actually. So there's somebody who's looking at the world pass him by, riding in a glass coach. You can look around. And so you have this general thing. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. And then it becomes particular and personal. Once a fear pierced him in that he mistook the shadow of his equipage for blackbirds. All of a sudden, the shadows and blackness, instead of real objects, the horses, those shadows send him flying like one of those Greek gods. He's got chariot drawn by flying animals. Somehow out of the mundane, in a split second, all this mythical stuff pours out of the guy and scares him. Now, the poet is very rational about this. A fear pierced him. That's poetic language, but it's descriptive of the fact. Why? It was just a mistake. The shadow of his equipage for blackbirds soul has this power to make metaphors that runs away with you. Metaphor is mistaking one thing for another. You're not fully in control of yourself. Horses, they move on the ground, forward. The birds are moving up into the sky by their wings. That is the basis of mythology. It is in your intellect. Figurative language answers, like metaphors, to phenomena inside of us. Yeah, thinking back to the seventh stanza, but it's a very different kind of imagining, whereas they were very much in control being able to imagine golden birds because they're then asked why they do not instead look at the blackbirds. So there's an intentionality behind that, whereas here, as you'd say very well, I think, it just happens, and that's why he's so startled. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so you see an example of this rational resistance in the next little poem. The river is moving. The blackbird must be flying. Here you get the species of rationality that tries to lay bare the extent to which poetry is about working out puzzles. You're given a fact that you're supposed to take as a premise, and then you're giving a conclusion. But it's an incomplete reasoning, what we call enthymem. There's a premise, there's the conclusion, but another premise is missing, and that's what you're supposed to supply. That's how the working out of puzzle works. That's what the river always does. Water just flows downhill. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. And then you're told the blackbird must be flying. Well, what could you possibly have thought that needs correcting in this way? It's the shadow of the bird in the water. The water is moving and the shadow is not. You must infer that contrast there, which is not uttered. So another way maybe to think about it is there's no deeper, more mysterious connection between the river and the blackbird. The river is just doing what it does and the blackbird is just doing what it does. Yep, it's trying to tell you, be sensible, be reasonable, look to nature. Don't start fantasizing. In answer to the previous poem, it's saying, don't start mythologizing here. Mm-hmm. And at some level, that's very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Perhaps be fully present to the world around you, which is, I think, what he's been reminding us of ever since the first stanza, and certainly in the seventh stanza. Don't have your imagination up in the clouds. Look around you and see what's happening around you. Yes, you always have to start from your experience, and you have to attend to it. And we have this last concluding poem. It was evening all afternoon. It was snowing, and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. 
this was another one who figured out the relationships, temporal, causal, imagined in you. You know what evening looks like, you know what afternoon looks like, that afternoon looked like evening. Here you have a switch in temporal sequence. It was evening all afternoon. Mm-hmm. Which is then echoed in, it was snowing and it was going to snow. Yep, the first one got the temporal sequence wrong, but it was, as a poetic description, accurate about events. In this mm-hmm. case, you also get causation right, and it doesn't sound paradoxical anymore. To contemplate is always to be thinking about the beings and their causes and their nature and character. There are at least three of these poems, it's yeah. winter scenes. And so you're told in conclusion, the blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. That seems to bring together the first poem and um, the second one. The cedar limbs are limbs of a tree. Mm -hmm. There was a tree mentioned there. In the first one, there was snowy mountains and there's snow here. Yes, it seems to, it links the first and the last, the first two and the last together in a really nice continuity. Mm -hmm. It may be too much to say that it's perfectly circular, but I think it does harken back to the beginning very nicely. Yeah, when you notice this thing that ties up somehow with the first poem, there's the black bird juxtaposed against the snow, Mm -hmm. there's black on white and small against great. You're right, maybe it's not cyclical, but it certainly has ascension and dissension. At this point, you're ready to look and to see the blackbird in the tree. In some way, you're supposed to have beaten off the attraction of the 20 snowy mountains of that grandeur. And now you're looking at the blackbird. You just notice it's there. So you're ready to revisit the image of the first stanza. Yeah, maybe the problem with the first stanza is that you're not really drawn to look at the blackbird mentioned there. You're just drawn to look at the mountains read again with this thing in mind you're supposed to have learned about the character of your imagination about metaphors about intellect about your perspective and its limits i think we've given some evidence that this is wallace stevens's poetic teaching revealing common experience the character of human experience as such there's a lot of guessing to be done nothing works out with logical rigor here he wants you to be fully engaged in trying to figure this out it's not a bunch of puzzles he's trying to say that real rationality is always trying to figure out the character of human rationality there's no getting around the experience of perplexity Mm-hmm. deal with it by being perplexed not simply by being a problem solver mm-hmm. so it's the essential object of your rationality or the process of being rational is rationality itself as you say there is no there's no manual for it and an essential part of that is going to be struggling through it then yes exactly the rationality is somehow self-involved it's about self-knowledge There's a lot of guesswork there that involves you in experiences that remind you that you have memories, you have a body, you have senses. It's not disembodied and abstract. And in that sense, poetry might be irreplaceable. Why bother with these puzzles when you could be doing scientific puzzles that might land you a job or some discovery that helps mankind? There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it's not self-knowledge. No, I suppose you could also ask, well, why go about it in this way? Why not take a more philosophical, maybe systematic approach? But then I think that the answer to that is an essential part of the human experiences being in a particular set of circumstances. If you take the systematic philosophical route, perhaps you're abstracting too much, whereas poetry, with its reliance on imagery and the senses, it keeps you within your 
your immediate circumstances. Yes, I think that's what he's getting at. Our temptation is objectivity, scientific knowledge, which is not to be disputed. It's provable, tested, experimented, verified, publicly available to all. It's the same everywhere to everybody. Maybe people become gullible because of it. They take too much for granted and it teaches them somehow to forget their own experience. Even our tabloids are full of what uh, studies show, but Mm. human beings can't help being subjective beings. No, no. And especially if the goal is self-knowledge, then it's impossible to be totally objective about that. Yeah, and he seems to be mitigating somehow against it. And this is what poetry does. You can share experience and have people go through it and see themselves and think about themselves in their humanity, which is another kind of universality. The tricky character of the poetry is to suggest that the audience should do some of the work that the poet is doing. It removes some of the distinctions between maker and user. Mm-hmm. If the use is self-knowledge, then we as an audience and the poet as a poet have that in common. And so we have come to the end of this very long discussion about a very short poem, which is why Wallace Stevens was a famous poet, and we're not very famous people, I suppose. (laughs) But you can still make it. (laughs) It's not too late. Caitlin, thanks again for joining me, and let's figure out some other poems to do this again. Yes, yes, let's do that. All the best. Thanks, same to you. (laughs) 